time when film criticism is as provocative as ever, Feelin' Film ventures to change the discussion from what we hate about a film to what we love about it. We judge more on emotional experience than technical merit, because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome everyone to a special mini-sode of the Feelin' Film podcast. With me tonight to talk about Martin Scorsese's newest film, Silence, is returning guest co-host Blaine Grimes, not to be confused with a certain zombie killer, Rick Grimes. Blaine is from the Real World Rewind and the brand new Star Wars Home One Radio podcasts. Blaine, thanks for coming on for this one, man. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me back on. I, I feel like I've been on a ton uh, in the past month or two, and that's that's great. I'm I'm really glad you keep having me back on. I'm always glad to come on. So. Excited to talk about this film. Yeah, you have. You actually think you actually are our most uh, tenured guest, which is a good word. And I actually, I kind of had planned to use the word tenured on purpose since you're a professor. You know, I wanted to get in that, <laughs> get that in there. Um, but yeah, you are. You've been here the most of all of our guests, and obviously, we enjoy having you. So one day, I think you'll have to come on and do something with Patrick. I think it's always been you and I so far. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> well. We're here to talk about Silence, uh, a movie about faith, a very complicated film. Uh, this is a story based on the 1966 novel of the same name by Shusaku Indo. It tells the story of two Jesuit priests who travel to Japan to learn the fate of their mentor and spread the gospel of Christianity throughout the country. Uh, it is an honest look into faith, doubt, persecution, and pretty much into the mystery of God. So... With that said, let's just get right into it. And I'll start by saying a couple things. One, we are going to spoil the movie. I don't know that this is the type of movie that you necessarily have to experience the plot without being spoiled. Um, it's not something that comes as necessarily a shock. It's more about the journey, I think. But that being said, please be aware if you are listening, that's going to happen. So... If you'd like to keep yourself you know, pure, go see the movie before you come back. And then secondly, I'm just going to go ahead and put this right out front because that way we don't have to dance around it. Um, Blaine and I are both Christians, so we are approaching this film from that place. Uh, we're not here to preach to anyone, and that's not what this, this podcast is about. But I wanted to be honest about how we react to this movie. Uh, we might be reacting differently than someone uh, of different different faith backgrounds might react to this film. Uh, and that's something we may talk a little bit about, but wanted to go ahead and get that out there. So, Blaine, with that being said, I would love for you to tell us about your history with silence. Sure, and I will start with a preface to all of this conversation as well, sort of echoing what you said. I'm used to sort of in my in my job being able to talk about films from a somewhat detached perspective. That's how a lot of my professional work goes. But Silence is really a film that um, is impossible for me to talk about as anything other than a Christian. And so this is this is a very resonant film for me personally, and the novel um, is, is very significant in my life. And so while I welcome and acknowledge that Scorsese's work does make room for non-Christian interpretations and perspectives. I'm actually really interested to, to hear some of those. I would love uh, for some of our listeners to share their experiences if they're not uh, people of faith. Um, but my reading and understanding of this film is obviously like predicated upon my personal faith. And it's a Protestant faith at that. Like I actually have very little knowledge about Catholicism that isn't centered around very, very specific theological debates. Uh, and I'm not even sure the knowledge that I have even surrounding that is um, as incredibly nuanced as it would need to be to engage fully. Uh, so I'm kind of coming at this work from an outsider, and that's a lot of what the movie is about and the novel. Yeah. So um, I think that that fits in many ways. But a little bit about my history, I guess, with the with the material. I think I first came across the novel um, by Indo while I was shortly after I was watching my way through a lot of Scorsese's filmography in high school. Um, I was probably a little too young to be watching some of these films. In, <laughs> yeah, no kidding. High school. <laughs> but I was but I was doing it. And um, so I, I looked on IMDb to see what Scorsese's next film was. 
and Silence came up. This was in uh, mid-2000s. And at the time, Daniel Day-Lewis was attached to the project. I'm still kind of sad in my heart Ooh. that he... That oh, he, uh, man, yeah. He, uh, you know, got dropped off because of delays or, or whatever. I wonder, um, would he have been Ferreira, maybe? Uh, I, I guess can't he, remember. He would have been younger still. I mean, that was a lot closer to, like, Last of the Mohican days. He might have... Yeah. I can't, I can't remember who he was supposed to be, but... Um, I'm still I'm I'm very happy with uh with um Adam Driver and and Andrew Garfield's performance but man Daniel Day Lewis Oh can you imagine yeah <laughs> sorry sorry to derail that that just got me no, in a whole uh, other spot there for a second Yeah so I was super excited because I I loved and still do love Daniel Day Lewis so I was very excited about um about this film and then I realized it was based on this book and so I thought well I I guess I should look uh look and figure out what this book is about so I rushed out and I bought Silence and at that time in my life as a Christian and a high school student who obviously, you know, thought I thought I knew way more about everything in the world than I did, um, I read Silence. And I was convinced at the time I hated the novel and I thought it was a terrible book. I, I couldn't fathom how a novel about an apostate priest that seemed at the time to me so uh, without hope could be anything other than useless and maybe even potentially harmful to your faith. Um, so that was my initial reaction to, to silence. And I went on sort of just with that negative association with the novel for a while. And the years went by and I, I kind of, you know, would think about silence every once in a while when I would hear Scorsese's name pop back up and I would always have those negative feelings. And of course the movie seemed like it was never, never, ever coming out. And so some years later I discovered an artist named uh, Makoto Fujimura, who I'll be talking about quite a bit on this episode, I'm sure, whom I discovered loved silence. And I think being a little bit somewhat more mature at the time, I thought I'd give Silence another try, see what happened. And the second time around reading the book, I absolutely loved it. I found it profound. I found it moving. It was an emotional read. But at the same time, Silence, the novel, was still it was a mystery to me. And it frankly, it still is and the film still is to me today because the events that take place in the novel are – the novel itself is really inseparable from its setting in 17th century Japan, which Indo researched extremely meticulously. And in many ways, the setting is just alien almost from our contemporary American setting, even though you can draw parallels and, and whatnot. But I would say that my perspective today is largely influenced. Uh, my perspective regarding silence is largely influenced by Mako Fujimura's work. Um, he has a book, and I'll, I'll probably be quoting from small segments of it in a bit, um, called Silence and Beauty. Mm-hmm. And he sort of unpacks the cultural um, setting in which silence takes place. And uh, it's an illuminating read, and I highly recommend it. I'll have another work or two, I think, to recommend as well that offers some sort of different interpretations. So that's sort of my experience with Silence. Obviously, I was very much looking forward to this movie um, last year, but I honestly didn't think it would would be released <laughs> because we'd been hearing about it for years. So it's like I, I don't think I believe the movie actually existed till I was sitting in the theater and it started. You know, the title card. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. So I was very excited and I certainly wasn't wasn't disappointed. So that I think that sums up my long experience with with Silence. Well, that's awesome, man, and that's that's a large part of the reason why I was really excited about being able to have you on for this this minisode because I knew that you had a history with the material, and I had actually talked to you about this material at some point, you know, when we would we would discuss in the past months before the film came out. We were talking about the hype of it, and I remember you having mentioned that you'd read the book and that you were encouraging others to read it, and I never got around to that. Um, I've actually. Since started reading it this weekend, I've now seen the film twice, and I am completely engrossed into this novel. Um, knowing what I know doesn't change anything for me reading it. It's it's done differently than the film, and I and I actually, I, for once, I can say right now I absolutely love both independently. I don't I don't feel like this is a book better than movie, movie better than book. I, I love both works. There are things about the book, even in the first third now that I'm seeing that are, you know, clear changes from the film. Uh, well, wait, that's backwards. Um, things in the book that were changed in the film, like a third priest, for example. I had no idea there was a third priest, at least, you know, that started off this journey. 
and they were pretty pretty smart changes i think by scorsese they were not things that needed to be there um the tone and and he kept he's capturing it really well from what i've seen so far and and i'm just i'm loving the read and I'm nervous about the read, to be honest, uh, getting towards the end and to, to some of the persecution uh, part once that happens, because I, I don't know how I'm going to react to that again. I, I will say, for me, the film really got better the second time. Uh, I watched it the first time late at night, like many of our friends did. Uh, this is unfortunately a film that has not been out in theaters the way that we kind of hoped i mean we'll talk about that a little bit later about maybe christians supporting this film and where they're at because uh it doesn't seem to be getting the box office numbers and the the praise and i I mean part of that's marketing but i watched it late at night and i don't feel that i was able to give it my full attention span i remember leaving it and being very challenged and very uh shook or shaken that was the word I used when I was, was telling people after I was leaving the theater. Um, but the second viewing, knowing what was going to happen and being able to focus on it, I think really enhanced it for me because it wasn't about, is he, or is he not going to step on the Fumi? Is, is that how you pronounce that? By the way, do you know? I'm not sure. No. Yeah. We're going to go with Fumi then <laughs> yeah. uh, executive decision. So I, it's not about whether he will or won't. It's about all of those little moments leading up to to that decision that I really got to focus in on the second time around. So it's a beautiful movie. Um, cinematically, just the shots in it this time I got I got to really be in awe of. I, I didn't I didn't notice how great the cinematography was the first time around, and my goodness, it, it was just such a gorgeous film. Um, mm-hmm. The fog banks uh, in some of the scenes, the Japanese scenery is just beautiful. But um, yeah, it it definitely affected me in a big way. And I guess it, I'm trying to think of where the best place to start would be. Uh, and I think we'll do that by talking about a side character. Because one of the the characters that I resonated the most with, or probably the the character that I resonated the most with in this film, uh, it goes by the name of Kichichiro, I believe. That's how we pronounce that. Um, And I'm curious what your thoughts are on on him as a character. Did you relate to him at all? I, I, I did in a big way. And I don't know if that was just me or if that was if that's by design in the story. Yeah, he's such an interesting character in both the novel and the film. And he's very clearly, you know, a person who's tossed back and forth between faith and doubt or faith and fear. He's sort of wrestling with these things. And it's it's very intriguing because he's exactly the kind of person uh, that Jesus would have chosen for a disciple. Um, the kind of person we see Jesus choosing for a disciple in the gospels at first we sort of think of him as a judas character but really it turns out um and we especially get this i think in the novel that um that he's more like peter um he seems like he seems like he's judas he seems like he's abandoning you know he's abandoning everyone and selling them out for silver you know whatnot um but ultimately he he has this stalwart faith um, and we certainly see that a little bit more fleshed out, like I said, in the novel. Um, Mako Fujimura, so here we go again, um, pointed out something about Kichijiro that um, I think was extremely relevant and insightful to me especially. He says that um, a character like that is there to get us to think about our own personal fume. Um, in other words, Mako says we need to be asking ourselves what are the things that we hold sacred it could be people it could be possessions it could be hobbies but but all of us um whether you're a person uh, of faith or not whether you're a christian or not you there are things you hold sacred you hold dear to your you know in your life it could be it could be uh, it could be a physical thing it could be a possession it could be money um it could be a spouse right it could be any of these things um but what are those things that we hold sacred that we then later trample on and abandon um, and Fujimura does a great job pointing out that one of the major ideas embedded in silence 
is that God's grace includes not only the moments when we're shining, so to speak, uh, when we're living in obedience, when we're um, when we're glorifying God, to use um, a bit of Christianese or a bit of Christian jargon, um, but that also includes our failures and our screw ups. Um, to me, that's extremely rewarding and encouraging to know that I can be loved by God um, and can be a recipient of his grace no matter how much and how massively I screw things up. Um, so if you can't tell at this point, like I highly, highly recommend Fujimura's book. Um, there are tons of great little gems in here where he he not only uh, helps you understand the novel better, but he shows you how the novel helps you understand yourself better. Wow. Um, so Kichijiro is um, is a is is a super interesting character. Yeah, I you know I agree wholeheartedly with all of that. I think the first time I was watching this, I saw him. The the thing, the thing that stuck out the most at the beginning was the idea of him as this comic relief in this incredibly tense, dramatic story that is there is no there is no comedy, there is no funny. This is not a, a situation that lends itself to humor. We're we're in this in this place where um, these people who have chosen a faith that is different from that of their nat- nation's choosing um, live in hiding and are persecuted and are killed, rounded up and killed. I mean, this is the definition of of a secret church uh, meeting at night trying to hide the fact that you have a certain set of beliefs um, because you'll be killed for them and, and, and maintaining those. So there's not a lot of levity in this world. And Kichijiro gives us just a bit of that, I think, that we really need to not lose ourselves in the, the desperate place that, that is – that this is happening, and and it's it's amazing to me that he, that this character was built in a way that he can provide both that and also the the very real relatability that he does for us um, mm-hmm. as for as far as his story arc. He also has a complete story arc, which I really like. The first thing I thought about when when I first saw him was, uh, and, and now I, I wish I would have written the name down. I I told myself I would just remember it, and I didn't. Um, but there's a character in Seven Samurai with a very similar name that has mm-hmm. a similar type of arc where he's almost like this comic relief character, but in reality he's incredibly troubled and he's incredibly pained inside. Um, and, and it was very similar to that for me. I really wish I could remember his name, but I can't, I can't either. It starts no. with a K too. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but what I did is I found myself, like you said, looking at my, my own, life through Kichichiro's eyes um, uh, because for me you know he's he's the character that I think I struggle the most like um, Rodriguez his his struggles um, probably are much more in the the realm of pride and ego um, worshiping these these things that are um, idols in a sense or can be an idol now I probably do a little bit of all of this stuff but I know that there are many times in my life where I'm like Kichiro, you know, and I, I do a thing that I know is wrong. And then I go, crap, I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't want to do that. God, forgive me for that thing. And then I try to do better. And then I do that thing again. (laughs) Yeah. And while the story is not trying to tell us that, you know, the Christian faith is this endless well of, you know, do what you want. It doesn't matter. The The point here is that it, it does matter inside to Kichichiro because he is, he is changed. He is a Christian. I, I love how they say it. I can't, I can't uh, say it the mm-hmm. way they do, but I love it. Um, he, he is, even though he denies it, he, he kind of wants to deny it, but he can't because it's his heart's been changed. Right. And it's that heart change that drives him to always want to repent and want to do better, even though he struggles with it. And so that idea that, in the end, I feel like he's he's still used. Like he has use. God God finds a way to use him for good, despite all of his denials and all of the things that he does uh, wrong or sins. 
And I just, I find that incredibly encouraging and hopeful for, mm-hmm. for us. For sure. So the other, the other characters we have are our main two priests, right? And I want, I wondered if you had much to pull from, uh, father, is it Garpe? I, I always wanted to call him Garupe. Yeah, Garpe, Garpe, I suppose. (laughs) Yeah, the names in this are always going to be a struggle uh, because they're all Japanese or Portuguese. But um, Father Garpe, played by Adam Driver. um, So so Father Garpe's arc uh, is clearly cut short, (laughs) unfortunately, um, by his death. And I wondered, do you have a a particular take on his character's choices? It's it's interesting. I was talking about this uh, at lunch today with a with a colleague. Um, and we were talking about how, uh, Garpe's sort of the end of his arc, his death is, is different in the novel. And I think we both agreed that maybe that was one, one area where we didn't really like one of the, some of the changes that, that Scorsese made. And in the novel, um, when the, um, when the martyrs are being tied up in the bamboo shoots and, um, the people in the bolt, uh, the boats have the poles, it's not to push them under or hold them under so that they sink. It's actually to um, push them away from the boat because what they would do is they would bob up and down and just slowly drown. It was, it was a form of torture, not just drowning. Um, and so when Garpe in the novel goes out there, he's actually, he thinks that these, um, these people have uh, apostatized. And so he's out there sort of, um, being a priest and ministering to them in their final moments, trying to offer them grace and get them to get them to turn back. Um, that's definitely a different reading than the one we get. Yeah. And so that's very different from what happens where it's almost like, um, Garpe doesn't really knows what, what he's doing in the film. He's just kind of crazy going out there, like maybe trying to pull them back up and save them. He's doing a very different thing there. So that's kind of the, the thing that sticks out to me about Garpe's arc just off the top of my head. I will also say I've only seen this film once. Like you, I was alert, I was awake, but um, it's super loaded, it's super dense, and there are so many characters to look at and so many things to think about. Um, I think it's impossible for me <laughs> for me to be able to talk about every every character just with one viewing through. So I'm definitely looking forward to being able to go back and spend more time with Garpe's character um, would... because he was sort of secondary. Yeah, he, he he definitely does get secondary viewing, and I mean that's that's by design. The, the even the book, mm-hmm. you know, the letters are from Sebastian Rodriguez. They're not. I yep. assume I haven't reached a letter yet from Father Garpe. So, you know, it's really his perspective the story is being told from. So by default, Garpe falls into that um, supporting character. Yeah. For me, he just in the film he he provides just such a juxtaposition or opposite effect of, of what we eventually see from Rodriguez. Mm-hmm. And I love that because this is a film that is not about telling you what the right answer is. That's if this was a movie that told me this is what you need to do. Here is a situation presented. Here's the right choice that you need to make. I wouldn't have nearly the same response to it, frankly, because I have a Bible for that. <laughs> and I have preaching for that. And I have other spiritual things in my life that I can go to for that. What, what Scorsese does here is he captures the wrestling that anybody of faith deals with because by, by definition, faith is a belief in things unseen and unknown. Um, you, there is no certainty in faith period. There is not, you cannot have it and it be certain. Otherwise it's not faith. It's like fact. And so by presenting these different situations where we have one priest who refuses to apostatize apostatize, um, to the point of essentially doing the thing that we all expect, which is going out a martyr, and we have Rodriguez who ends up not making that choice, it gives us a chance to look at both of them and say, which one do we think made the right choice? Mm -hmm. And... I'm I'm definitely intrigued to see if there's anything else in the book about that. Um, and Father Garpe, I, I would love to know what its effect may have had long term. One of the things that 
hit me big time hard in this movie is a line. Uh, well, there's a line from the trailer where um, the Inquisitor says the price for your glory is is their suffering. And in the trailer, that didn't really make a lot of sense to me. I was like, ah, oh, it's kind of out of context. But in the film, when that line is said, um, you start to think about things in a in a different way. You know, are as a priest, are they trying to become martyrs for their own glory? There's there's a point where, uh, in the in the movie, I believe it's Rodriguez, is I think talking. Maybe it's voiceover, but he. Maybe it's in the very beginning of the film, actually. But there's a point where they're discussing the fact that Christian... Oh, it is. It's in the opening. where Christ, He said, we're talking about how Christians asked to be tortured so that they could show their strength. And I think before I watched this film, I'd have been like, heck yeah, cheering, like, go team. Mm-hmm. But having watched this, I really have a little bit different thought process on this now. And, and Garpe's at arc takes me to that place because I started to think, you know, is me asking to be tested? Uh, what, what glory am I bringing to God by that? Or am I, am I doing this for him? Or am I doing this for me? Am I doing this for others? Which is what this film is really asking us, you know, what, 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 what the ultimate choices in the end of this movie come down to is you can save these human beings that are here right now in front of you by doing this thing, or you can be proud and not do that thing, and they will die. Which one is more important? So, anyway, all of that to say, I guess that that that's kind of what Father Garpe does for me is he provides that that balance or that that opposite choice. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's interesting too his um, his just hollowed out look, Garpe's. I, I, did you mention Adam Driver losing all the weight? No, no I, I had not yet. That was it was one of the things the the facts about the movie though. Yeah, what fifty pounds or something he lost. Yeah, and I mean he's already a thin guy. Um, he he just looks even more the outsider coming into this strange foreign land because he's so he's so thin, he's so gaunt. Um, that was one thing that that like the the physicality of his performance really stuck out to me in a way that um um. Uh, not Adam Drivers. Um, oh, Garfield. Uh, Father Rodriguez. Yeah, uh, Andrew Garfield. Father Rodriguez. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, Andrew Garfield's performance didn't in the same way. Um, there was a lot. There was a lot more physicality to um, to uh, Garpe, at least in that first that first act. Yeah, I agree. Um, so I, I don't want to not spend enough time on this. So so let's just get to the the crux of what this really is is all about and that is the ending and the decision made is where the majority of the discussion around this film is going to lie uh, whether it's did he make the right choice um or what happens to him and his soul so i'm going to just give you a chance to to start off by what you're reading on the end of this film and frame it in a way i mean what is your takeaway how does it affect you i guess is because really it's it's not about again this is what should or should not happen it's about what you took from it mm-hmm. absolutely yeah and i mean i get the the really really short answer is i don't know I, when i when i said that this <laughs> book is a mystery to me it it really it genuinely is like i love this book and it always it always encourages me and scares me sometimes, uh, depending on the circumstance, in different ways. Um, and that's a sign you've got a, a good or rich work when you can keep going back to it and getting different things. Um, but it seems to me that like the 7th century or 17th century setting, I think it is, um, is so absolutely crucial to understanding both the book and the novel because um, Scorsese is, is a student of the novel. He's been working on this um, – this film for years and years now and he's he's dug very deeply into uh endo's world and the world of 17th century japan and i'll say that i probably feel more strongly about my interpretation of the novel than i do the film part of that is because i've read the novel several times and have seen the film once mm-hmm. but both the film and the novel have their own i think unique uh sort of built-in ambiguity 
but in very different ways and places. And I always say that it's really crucial that a film be read and accepted on its own terms and not just based on how we interpret similar events in the novel. So we can't just say, oh, well, this it ends this way in the novel, so it has to be this thing, same thing in, in, in the film. Um, that being said, like I've only seen Silence once, and it's a complex film, so I don't think I'm going to say anything here that is going to be my final and authoritative consensus or opinion about this. Um, my understanding and appreciation of the film, like the novel, is just going to grow and evolve over time. But I think it's important to remember that First and foremost, Father Rodriguez is an outsider. And in many ways, um, the film and the novel are both uh, works about outsiders in a strange land. And in a very real sense, Father Rodriguez, you mentioned this already, he views himself as the savior of these people. And there's even some indication that others view him this way as well. If you read accounts of uh, of Christ in the gospel and how many times people reacted to him, there were crowds that would press against him so so much that he would have to go get in a boat and go teach in a boat so that he wouldn't get trampled. People wanted to just touch him in crowds. And they do the same thing with Garpe and Rodriguez. They just want to get close. They want to they touch them. And then, of course, that is um, Ferreira's, uh, part of Ferreira's ultimate argument at the end is, Look, these people aren't dying for Christ; they're dying for you. Yeah, that hit um, me pretty hard. And we, yeah, and we think, we think, well, it it certainly looks like it could be that way. Mm-hmm. Um, these people are just clamoring to to get to them. Um, so yeah, he views himself as as a savior, and you can think about how they're willing to die for Rodriguez and Garpe. Um, they push around him just to touch him and confess their sins, and of course, there's tons of Christ imagery in the film associated and connected to Rodriguez. He rides into town on a donkey, which is like Christ coming in to Jerusalem to yep. die on the cross, right? For the sins of the people. Mm-hmm. Um, and people, um, people are, you know, throw stones at him and yell at him. In fact, when he's doing that, um, he looks in the water at one point and sees, um, Christ in an image of Christ where his face should be. Mm-hmm. Um, so it seems like he certainly is associating his suffering with Christ and he sees himself almost as a Christ figure to these people. Yeah. He flat out That's, says it like, at that point. He talks about it. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's definitely possible to interpret his, um, apostasy as an actual, I think it's actually possible to interpret his apostasy as an act of faith in the sense that he's finally able to, Abandon at that point his reliance upon um, an imperialist system. A lot of this is coming from Fujimura's work, and his his lofty self perceptions as a Christ figure. Uh, Fujimura does talk a lot about this in his book, and there's one quote, if you don't mind. I think I'm just going to read. That's not oh, yeah. terribly long, um, but this is from Fujimura's book, Silence and Beauty, and he says. By stepping on the fume, Father Rodriguez inverts into his genuine faith, faith not dependent on his religious status or on his own merit, but a faith in grace, grace that, like the rays of sunshine after a day, provides an aroma of light. He knows, too, that by stepping on the fume, he will set aside his identity as a Portuguese and at least superficially subsume his identity into Japanese culture. Um so it's it's very possible to interpret this his his apostasy as a as a act of faith. That's typically been the interpretation I've leaned toward with the novel, and I guess some with the film. But at the same time, and I love how this <laughs> I love how this <laughs> this is put in tension. I think the film, the novel, both leave open the possibility that Rodriguez thinks he's true and is convinced he's truly abandoning the faith. Um, at least relationally, when he tramples. Mm-hmm. And the final image of the film is pretty indicative of that, where we see Rodriguez clutching the crucifix as his lifeless body is engulfed by flames. Um, you can also flip that reading and say, well, if his wife risked you know, right. death basically to put that crucifix there, maybe there's some sort of spark there. Um, so again, that's intention. But I would say if you want to read more about this perspective that actually sort of reads his apostasy in a negative light, 
Um, my colleague uh, that I that I work with has a wonderful article at ChristinPopCulture.com. I told myself I was going to remember the name of it, and I don't. Um, his name is Peter Epps, and you can look you can look for him on ChristinPopCulture.com. And he's written an, an article about silence there, and he's written about silence a ton academically as well. He lived in Japan for several Ooh, years, wow. um, and so he's he's very very knowledgeable as much as anybody I would say about Indo and about the novel Silence, um, and he sort of interprets um, the act of apostasy in light of Indo, the writers, um, the novelists' um, overall sort of trajectory of faith. So it's a very insightful read. I, I highly recommend it. Nice, and I'll have to check that out. Yeah, I think this will get at something we're probably going to talk about here in a bit too, um, with respect to how Christians tend to be uncomfortable with this kind of film. Um, I think that's part of the reason why it's not playing very well with audiences. Um, Christians oftentimes are very, very obsessed um, with just knowing the quote-unquote right answer, right? We want to fill in the blank. We want to make sure we score 100 on the test. And I suspect many people of faith have been and will be dissatisfied with this film because it refuses to give tried answers to extremely culturally loaded and complex questions mm-hmm. um and so yeah I, I i think that's one reason maybe it's not it's not playing over that well i would definitely agree with that statement uh <laughs> i you know i've gone back and forth and it's funny i've i i usually am a very strong willed personality so i'm i go all in when i love something or all in when i don't and i went the first time I saw this, I went all in on the bad move decision. Uh, I I thought that this was absolutely the wrong choice. And it was awesome because I got to have a conversation online with uh, a bunch of, of our colleagues and friends that really challenged me. And, and that was part of why I wanted to go see it again so so soon, just because I wanted to read this with some of the things that in mind that I had talked to them about. So my my take on it at the very beginning was so and the reason this is so challenging for Christians for those that may not be of of our faith is because Jesus in the Bible specifically says at one point if you deny me before man I will deny you before my father essentially telling us that if father rodriguez is wrong he is no longer saved by grace he is going to go to hell and that is that is the bare bones, like, as, as bluntly as I can put it. It is a matter of his eternal life on at the stakes of, of this decision. And that's how most Christians will see it, superficial, at the beginning. And that's how I saw it. And I read it in terms of his witness. And this is probably partially because these are things that I've been learning uh, in recent study for myself, and so they were fresh on my mind. I was thinking a lot about if he makes this choice, are those people that are looking at, looking at him to be an example, what are they going to think? What are they going to do? And how is it going to affect their ultimate faith um, and ultimate ability to, to find salvation in Christ? And so I was, I was very negative on it to the point where I, you know, I thought if they die, they die. This is just, this is just earth. Um, and so then I went and saw it again. And I came out and I actually remember, I, I remember going back into that same thread and I, I posted again and I was like, hashtag team apostate. Yeah. I was like convinced like that he made the right decision. I had completely flipped 180. By the time I got home from my 45 minute drive after the film, I had changed my mind back and forth about five more times. And I just don't know. <laughs> I, I'm still in the middle. And I think, I think I wrestle the most with it because I I, I struggled at first to think that it was such a black and white issue. It was a, an eternal salvation issue. And my readings now into the film, I start to think maybe that's not the case. And maybe, maybe you can, maybe by denying and stepping on the Fumi, he, he's really just stepping on an idol. Like it's not, you're not actually trampling on Christ. You're, you're trampling on a thing that someone has, made to be like a Christ, which is actually a sin for him in the first place. 
And if can can you be a man of faith and can you maintain that relationship with God in the silence? And that's that's where I end up sitting and and just kind of thinking on. And so I too don't think I have a full on decision anymore about whether I think it was right or wrong. I think I'm probably leaning honestly to the place where I'm grateful that I believe that God could have used Father Rodriguez no matter what his actions were in that moment. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that our ending is a good example of that because we do see the moments with his wife, which are very encouraging to me. We see Kichichiro, who clearly has uh, come around in a lot of ways, maturity-wise in his faith. Uh, And I think... The, the best thing about this film is that it ultimately does a very good job of presenting Christians as reasonable and intelligent and faithful people. And it'll, it is a, it is a great film for someone to go to with a non-believer and just have discussions with, uh, because it doesn't, it doesn't preach at people that are not faithful and, and, and shove something down their throat. And it also doesn't, present Christians in a way that maybe America sees us today. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. No, absolutely. I'd love to, to talk more about um, how maybe this film compares to faith-based films, maybe succeeds where it fails. Yeah. Is yeah. Something weird? I think, I think we should. I mean, I think I, I don't even know that people see the comparison at this point. I mean, you put this up side by side and you say, okay, silence and God's not dead. And one of these two is making millions of dollars at the box office uh, because it's made for a very low budget and people are going to see it. But people are, like you said, they're almost afraid to be challenged and afraid to be uncomfortable. I loved that word, afraid to be uncomfortable. Um, Do you think there's any other reasons for it other than just – the kind of personal aversion to <laughs> to being challenged. Well, I think silence is really interesting here because on one hand it's notable because it's so spectacularly and unashamedly earnest in its presentation of the Christian faith that's so central to the film. I mean, I I'm fairly certain. I haven't I have I don't have statistics on this, but I'm fairly certain that Christ and the gospel are talked about with greater frequency clarity and probably authenticity than in the vast, vast majority of faith-based films. Um, so on one hand, silence seems like it's perfectly sort of at home with faith-based films and faith-based filmmaking, at least in w- it's, a, its willingness to sort of talk about its, its religious subject matter very, very openly. Um, but at the same time, there's also in this sense in which it couldn't be more at odds with these kinds of films. And so when we're talking about faith-based films, for those who um, aren't familiar, um, you're fortunate if you're not. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm thinking movies like Facing the Giants, Fireproof, Courageous, God's Not Dead, God's Not Dead 2, God's Not Dead 3, however many there are. Um, We're talking about those kinds of movies. Ultimately, I think films like Silence provide a much-needed perspective for faith-based films and filmmakers and audiences. And I think that silence can even offer a helpful step forward for the genre of faith-based filmmaking. And here's what I mean. Silence is a film that shows that you can be, like I said earlier, completely honest and forthcoming in your depictions of faith on screen. I mean, I don't think anyone could walk away from silence and say, hmm, you know, was that movie about the Christian faith or about faith and doubt or something like that? I don't think anybody walks out of the theater wondering that. Um, or, were you know, were those people claiming to be Christians or something? I, I don't think that's a question. But at the same time, silence is also very different from many faith-based films in a good way. Because, like we've talked about, it gives viewers room to wiggle and explore and ask questions. And that's what good art does. Like you said, it's not about preaching at you. Um, sadly most faith-based films don't do that. Uh, they do the opposite of that. They typically 
come in with a very narrow message or idea that they want you to walk away with, right? Mm -hmm. And this usually leads to really sloppy writing um, that ignores or omits um, or just caricatures anything that could complicate that message or cause you to walk away with any sort of uncertainty. So, like, the first God's Not Dead is the classic example of this with the stupidest portrayal of uh, uh, of a atheist I've ever seen in my life um, and all other sorts of uh, unbelievers. It's just, it's, it's ridiculous. Um, and that's typically what we see. Like that's, that's bad filmmaking one. Mm-hmm. And two, it's actually also antithetical to the Christian faith. It is because the Christian faith encourages people to work through trials and doubts and temptations. So in other words, I think faith, faith based films, they present an idyllic, depiction of the Christian life that frankly doesn't match up with our experience. It seems completely fake and it's not willing to journey with anybody to the darker corners of our lives. Um, or even if it is, even if it's willing to show a character going through quote unquote, going through something, it's all fixed in the span of 30 minutes. Um, and that doesn't really work when somebody says, you know what? Um, I have depression and I'm suicidal and guess what? It didn't get fixed in 30 minutes. Like, I still struggle with those things. Um, so presenting a message where all of that's just fixed and hunky-dory is antithetical to the Christian faith, not just bad filmmaking. It's completely dishonest. Um, but silence is the kind of film that shows that you can do both. You can, one, you can directly address issues of faith and spirituality in a film like this does without having to sacrifice any and all semblance to the reality that is all of our broken lives that are marked by pain and suffering of varying degrees and difficulties. Um, you can do both. And I think silence, I am so thankful that, that silence is here to do that. And I hope that Christians will go out and will wrestle with the questions that, um, that this film is asking. And before I turn it over to you, cause I've rambled enough. <laughs> I think there's one more quote from Fujimura that is absolutely worth reading. Nice. That perfectly captures the way I felt about silence. The first time I encountered it, um, and sort of offers a helpful way forward. Fujimura says, um, a complex work of art that may lead to deeper reflection on human experience and complexity A work of art such as Silence will be deemed suspect in such a setting, as its ambiguity strikes many Christians I know as something to be avoided. They might say, this is almost exactly what I said when I first read it, I do not want to have anything to do with the failures of the faith, or to doubt God is sin. But Endo, the the author of the novel, exposes the flaw in this thinking. It doesn't express faith in God, but instead a faith in clarity. And as one of my friends puts it, our lust for certainty. Faith can be rational, but only after a deeper journey toward mystery and transcendence. I love that quote. Um, it's very convicting to me. Oh, it's very convicting. Uh, but it's absolutely wonderful. So I think I think Silence is um, is a wonderful film at this time and, and certainly can speak to um, the faith, faith-based films that it um, seems to have nothing to do with and have everything to do with at the same time. Yeah. It's actually, I I believe I saw a trailer for the shack before silence and I I just chuckled and (laughs) shook my head at the same time going, really, this is happening right now. Um, and that's, and that's the thing. And, and, you know, personally, I, I feel that that film is, it is incredibly emotionally raw. The shack, um, it will be as a movie. I've read the book several times actually. Um, and it's very moving and touching for our, our emotions, but it, it has some, some theology holes and uh, it doesn't present things in a, in a way that is, is necessarily the way a Christian's really going to experience their faith. And so, yet that movie is going to probably make millions upon millions and upon millions of dollars. And it has the ability to lead people to a misinterpretation and misunderstanding of what true Christian faith and Christ following is. It, when you were talking, I, I looked over here at my bookshelf briefly and like at my copy of Fireproof. <laughs> <laughs> because that's one that I actually still kind of stand behind a little bit. Uh, but yeah, I, I agree. There's a, there's a hole out there for films like this and the passion of the Christ. Um, this one surprisingly was not super violent for a Scorsese film. He was very restrained compared to his normal self. 
And I think yeah. that I think that that was a smart move. The uh, a couple things that I just want to briefly mention before we wrap up that I really love about this. I really enjoy the soundtrack and slash lack of score that this film has. One of the things Scorsese talked about was how he intentionally wanted it to be the sounds of nature and not uh, faked. This film opens with about 60 seconds or more of nothing but just an increasingly loud locusts, you know, crick or this thing is locusts that are just chirping uh, until we, you know, poof to black and, and silence for the title card. And the film ends in a very similar way. There are some other moments during it that are like that, that I really felt connected to. And I think transported me into this place in Japan. Um, I think they did a great job of capturing the persecution of the Christians, the, um, the fear of, of living in these tight, tiny spaces, these things that are actually true historical fact, whether you're, a believer in the faith or not, this is truly what happened to people who were. Um, that is undebatable. And for those people to be so convicted that they would live a life like that in just terror and fear um, is is very convicting for me. Uh, it makes me think, what am I doing that is even in the ballpark of, of something like that? A couple, a couple of scenes that really stood out to me I think that uh, everything, every conversation, this film had some of the the most exciting or interesting scenes of nothing but dialogue that I've ever experienced. There are moments when Andrew Garfield's character, when Sebastian Rodriguez, Father Rodriguez is talking to an inquisitor, uh, Inomu, Inome, whatever, at Sama, and they're just, I'm, I'm captivated by their conversation, the analogies that they're using and throwing back and forth at each other. It's this, it's this brilliant game of, you know, trying, they're both making valid points and using this analogy of Japan as a woman with many wives at one point. It's, it's, it's fascinating to hear them sparring. I mean, it's, it's like a true challenge of the faith where someone is, is coming at you and you're trying to come back at them with scripture to, to refute or to explain your position. And I, I just love the way that, that those scenes are captured because they, they let it be real. Um, you know, the inquisitor makes some very good points at times that it's almost hard to disagree with. And I think that lends itself to our ultimate um, struggle with it. And then I, I just have to say this about the whole fact that the film is about doubt and that we, have discussed how that's potentially a turnoff. I have talked to friends and even my pastor when he first found out about this and asked me, is this a safe film for us to go see? Is this going to put things in Christians heads that are going to bring problems for them? And uh, that very Sunday, a message came up uh, in my church service and it was a, a verse in the Bible where Jesus uh, has risen from the dead after three days and he's talking to his disciples and his, the verse reads that the disciples doubted that he was there. They, they literally are in his presence of a resurrected man, God, and they doubted he's, he, they can touch him, right? He's standing there physically in front of them and they doubted. So the idea that Christians aren't going to doubt with their faith is ludicrous <laughs> mm-hmm. and completely unreasonable. And this film captures that and puts it in a place where it makes it accessible and, and makes it okay to feel like mm-hmm. you can wrestle with those things. So, yeah, I don't know. I, there's so much more we could just go into. I, I hate having to kind of rush through it, but yeah, it is a phenomenal film. It's a phenomenal piece of filmmaking and I really really hope that eventually once this gets out on home video that more people go see it that maybe churches pick it up and show it to some of their congregation in small groups that people start to have conversations about this film people show it to their older children things of that nature and that uh, this becomes a, a talking piece for for people yeah for sure 
I was going to mention very briefly uh, how much I ended up enjoying and appreciating the decision to shoot the film primarily in the English language. Because at first I was, I'll be honest, I, I was a little put off by that decision. And this just was me not thinking through it very well. I was like, can't we just read subtitles, right? We can, I mean, the films are, the, the, the topic's already not that accessible. Like, what are subtitles going to do? Um, then I got to thinking about how the film's trying to show us what it's, what it's like for an outsider to come into a culture and face doubt and temptation and silence. And that changed my perspective on the use of the English, English language in the film. Because I think the film has some interesting verbal cues in there that indicate that while we're hearing everything in English, conversations are actually taking place in Japanese and Portuguese. That's a really cool thing to do. But I think more relevant to the conversations that we've had is how Scorsese doesn't um, anglicize the actors' accents. So for me at least, and I think my wife mentioned this as well, there were many times in the film when I had to really like almost physically lean in and focus really intently to, to understand and hear what a character was saying because I'm not accustomed to those accents. And I know that um, that experience may vary for, for viewers. Like my friend who um, lived in Japan didn't have that problem. But um, several people I've talked to have mentioned the accents were made you have to listen closely. So that's what I noticed. And what that does is that puts us as viewers, especially mainstream American viewers, in Rodriguez's shoes as an outsider. Mm -hmm. And that could not happen if the dialogue was in Japanese or Portuguese. Because you're reading at that point. You're not listening that much. Yeah. So that was just one final thought. I really appreciated that decision in the end, and I think it adds a, a very interesting layer to the film. I agree. I agree. And probably for maybe different reasons. But I, for me, just making it accessible was important. I just yeah. I, I think it's a long, heavy film that there's no breaks in the tension as far as the weight of the the situation you're in. It's quiet, and I think I would fall I would I would have a trouble staying engaged if I had to continually read, um, and I wouldn't be able to really focus on the nuance of of facial expressions and and things of that nature that really convey the emotion and the struggle that, that these priests and the Japanese Christians were, were in at the time. So yeah, mm -hmm. I'm wholeheartedly agree with that. Yep. Well, thanks for coming on, man. I'm so glad you were able to make this and, and we got to have this conversation um, for what it's worth <laughs> uh, for listeners that uh, are not Christians who have gone through this whole journey of this hour with us. Thank you. Big, big, big. Thank you. Um, Appreciate you taking the time to listen to our perspectives, whether you agree with us or not. And uh, for sure, yeah. And if uh, and if if it wasn't your cup of tea or your thing, you know your thing, and and you skipped this for the most part, that you know that doesn't bother me at all either. I, I totally understand that. If anyone has listened to this far, and uh, you aren't a Christian, um, you have a different faith of any kind. Uh, maybe you're Buddhist. Um, I would love to hear your thoughts on silence because I. Unfortunately, I just don't have um, enough of different faith-based uh, people in my life close to me. And Blaine and I both were talking about this earlier offline, and and we would just love to to be able to have some conversation and, and hear what you took away from this film, or if it was just a total, you know, waste of your time because you couldn't connect to it. Um, so if you, if you have any thoughts on that, email us at feelinfilm at gmail dot com or look us up, look up the show on Twitter at feeling film. There's a Facebook page. There's a Facebook discussion group, plenty of ways to get engaged. Uh, or you can seek me out at Aaron L white, A A R O N E L W H I T all over the web. That being said, Blaine, tell them where they can find you and what kind of projects you got going on. Sure. You can find me on Twitter at, at D E P T underscore of underscore tourism. Um, you can find me writing at realworldtheology.com. I write reviews there. I also have a monthly podcast there where I look at older films called real world rewind. And then I'm very, very excited because, um, my friend Joshua Crabb and I have started a brand new star Wars podcast called home one radio. And we break down all of the stories that we love in star Wars, really focus on digging in deep, uh, into some of the stories we have in the star Wars universe. We're not really a news sort of a news based podcast. So if you're a star Wars fan or, if you like Star Wars, but you want to you want to learn how to nerd out about it a little deeper way, that's that's why Home One Radio exists. So um, you can find us on iTunes and at homeoneradio.com. 
I will say that for me, Blaine and Josh are two of the biggest Star Wars fans that I've ever met. I have lots and lots of friends that are very much into Star Wars, uh, lots of geek and nerdy buddies of mine, but these two guys, uh, they, they you don't start a podcast every week to talk about Star Wars unless you really talk about Star Wars and you love it. I mean, these guys are re- these guys are reviewing like books and comic books and I think there's an episode on a pop figure. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know what all they're doing, <laughs> doing yeah, over there and everything. Yeah. But if it's star Wars related, um, that is your place to go. So please uh, check out home one radio, man. I still want to call it home run. It is home one radio, <laughs> kind of like rogue one, only home one. All right, right. I digress. Thanks again, man, for being on with us. Uh, appreciate it. Every time it's a joy to talk through stuff with you and, uh, this film especially this is definitely not where the conversation is going to end with this one and i hope to hear your thoughts once you get a chance to see it again but that's it for us for this episode so until the next time stay positive and keep feeling film